You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Mark chapter 8 with me as we continue in our 2020 vision series. And again, if you're a guest today, uh, I see several of you that I don't think I've seen before. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And on behalf of the pastors and members, we are very glad that you chose to be with us today. Um, I want to let you know that um, for some of you, this message is going to be totally new. something you've never heard before. Uh, For others, if you've been here more than six months... Um, hopefully by now what I'm going to say today will sound somewhat familiar to you. And uh, I don't want you to confuse uh, a message that is familiar with and a message that's not important. Um, the reason, actually, I'm going to be sharing a message that I've shared, I guess now between the two of us, probably six, seven times in the past three years, is because we believe it's that important. Um, we want to make sure that you understand that as a church, we are building everything we do around what I'm going to be talking about Today, It's really what it means to be a disciple, to be the man, to be the woman, to be the church that God has called us to be. And so with that in mind, I want you to look with me in Mark chapter 8. And uh, as always, the notes for today are on the YouVersion Bible app that Luke referenced earlier. Um, if you have that app, just go to events and then you will see Crossing Paragold on there and you can uh, click on that and there will be notes if you want to follow along and that will serve you. But Mark chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 34. I'm reading from the NIV translation. It says, whenever Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, he said the following, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? For someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I just, I want to pause again and just recognize we desperately need you in this moment. Um, We are a room full of people who come in here from all different places with uh, a lot going on underneath the hood. And so I just ask that Holy Spirit that you will do what only you can do been reminded all week long that Jesus, whenever you call us, you call us to come and die so that we can experience life to the fullest. That sounds so counterintuitive. And so I pray that you will um, be able to take something that seems to be um, so silly in the eyes of our culture and our world and that you will make it alive in our hearts. Help us to see that truly it is wisdom from you that is meant to help us become the men and women that we have been created to be. And I pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1953, in a race to reach the unconquered summit of Mount Everest, a beekeeper from New Zealand, Edmund Hillary, along with his Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norway, became the first men to make it to the top of the 29,000-foot mountain. And since that time, despite the fact that for hundreds of years, people thought that, that 
nobody can make it to the top of Mount Everest. Upon Hillary and uh, Tenzing's accomplishment, over 5,000 other climbers from different parts of the world have gone on to ascend to the top of the world's highest peak. And though all of these climbers have many, many, many differences, there's one thing that they all have in common. And that is, the one thing they all have in common is they all have followed a Sherpa which is a type of man, like the one you see in this picture, who has grown up in the mountains of Nepal, and therefore, because he knows the mountains better than anyone else, is able to lead and guide the climbers to the top of the mountain. And the reason I share that with you this morning is what I want you to realize is just as a a Mount Everest climber needs to learn how to follow a Sherpa guide if they want to make it to their desired destination... You and I have to learn how to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life if we want to make it to our desired destination. In other words, I'll put it like this. If we're willing to follow Jesus as our guide, if we're willing to trust him with everything that we have, then with a little bit of grit and a lot of grace with the proper training and the proper resources and equipping and a community around you, though your spiritual journey will still be long and hard, you will eventually, if you will continue to trust Jesus, will end up in a place that is good and beautiful and true. But on the flip side, if instead of trusting Jesus as your God, if rather than, 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 than following Jesus' teachings and his way of life and his way of doing things, if you instead say, you know what, I'm going to do things my way, then in the words of Jesus, you will find yourself heading down a path that will eventually lead you into destruction. And the reason it's so important that you get this today is because there is a lie that has been circling around the Bible Belt for for 30, 40, 50 years now that says something like this, that to be a disciple of Jesus is simply to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And then basically to live however you want, hopefully die in your sleep and go to heaven after you die. And the reality is what I want you to see today is that to follow Jesus is not simply to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, but to be a Christian, to be a disciple is literally to take up Jesus's life and teachings as your map, his presence as your God and his grace for your journey. This is what it means to be a disciple. And to be a disciple, as you've heard us say many times before, is to reorient your life around three goals. And here's the goal is you're to reorient your life around if you're a disciple of Jesus. Goal number one is to be with Jesus. That's the first goal as a disciple. Second goal of a disciple is to become like Jesus. And the third goal of a disciple is to do what Jesus did. I want to say a short word on each of these. I'll draw some implications and then we will be done today. But first off, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, and by the way, I realize there are some of you here today, you're not disciples of Jesus. I want you to know, I'm really glad that you're here. We are so thankful to have you with us. And if you're like, is this message going to be relevant to me? Yes, it is because you're here, because you're seeking. And today you're going to be able to leave and know this is what it means to be a disciple. Okay. And so goal number one as a disciple of Jesus is to be with Jesus. Um, This may come as a surprise to some of you, but Jesus did not invent discipleship. He was not the first rabbi with disciples, nor was he the last rabbi with disciples. In fact, if you read the four Gospels, you will see there were several rabbis who had disciples. For example, the Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptizer had disciples. And what you need to know is that if you were a disciple to a rabbi in the first century, your number one goal was simple. It was to be with your rabbi. And when I say to be with your rabbi, it's important to know that I don't mean like 
metaphorically be with your rabbi. Like literally, if you were a disciple of a rabbi in the first century, it would mean giving up everything. You would leave your family, you would leave your job, you would leave what was familiar and comfortable, and you would literally follow your rabbi around from village to village to village for at least two years. You would uh, sleep beside your rabbi, you would eat with your rabbi, you would pretty much spend every waking minute, minute in the presence of your rabbi. And therefore, because this is true, what you need to know is that when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he calls us to do the same thing, to literally reorient our entire lives around this first go, which is to be with Jesus. And if you're new to the church and new to the Bible and you're like, well, how's that possible? I mean, I don't see Jesus physically here. So how am I supposed to be with Jesus if he's not here like in flesh and blood? That's a good question. And though I don't have time to go into it in great detail, in short, the way the Bible teaches us to be with Jesus in the here and now is through his Holy Spirit. And you can read about this in John 14 through 16, where Jesus says, it's actually good that I leave this earth and ascend to go through my father, because when I do, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And if you're listening, you're like, well, why is it good that Jesus leaves and sends us his Holy Spirit? Why is it actually better that he leaves and sends us his Spirit? Well, it's because of this. When Jesus was here on earth in flesh and blood, think about this. He could only be in one place at one time. Which means you and I, if we wanted to get to him today and talk to him, we would either have to stand in a really long line, right? Or we would have to like fight and try to get his attention. But now that Jesus has ascended to be in heaven, he has sent us his Holy Spirit, which means he has sent us his own presence, which then means no matter who you are or where you come from, if you have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you now, right now, have unlimited access to the presence of God, to the presence of Christ himself. Right? This is what it means to be with Jesus for us through his Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus referred to in John 15 as abiding in the vine. It's what Paul called praying without ceasing, which doesn't mean that, that you just walk around with your eyes closed and your head bowed all day long, but it just means you live in this kind of conscious communion with your mind on the presence of God. The brother Lawrence, he called this practicing the presence of God. Whatever you call it, it doesn't really matter. The point I just want to make is this. If you want to be a Christian, or a better word for that is a disciple, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, your goal first and foremost is to learn how to be with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life through his Holy Spirit. Um, Frank Lawback, who was a missionary to a group of indigenous Muslim people in the Philippine Islands, um, he's actually very famous for his literary work. In fact, he's like the only missionary to ever be on a U.S. postage stamp. Um, but for him, he didn't want to give his life to being famous for his work in literacy. He wanted to give his life to what he called the game of minutes, which he literally said for him, his goal in life was to bring God to mind upon every minute in his life. And he talks about this in his book. This is just a book of, that has his journal entries in it. And I want you to, to hear this. I've read it before, but it's worth reading again. This is from his journal entry in 1930. And he's talking about the game of minutes, of bringing God to mind upon every minute. And here's what he says. This concentration upon God is strenuous, but everything else has ceased to be so. I think more clearly. I forget less frequently. Things which I did with a strain before, I now do easily with no effort whatsoever. Listen to this. I worry about nothing and I lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry about anything. 
Everything goes right. Each minute I meet calmly as though it were not important. Nothing can go wrong except one thing. That is that God may slip from my mind if I do not keep on guard. If he is there, the universe is with me. My task is simple and clear. How good is that? The late Dallas Willard, who, like Lawback, gave his life to practicing the presence of God, had this to say, and it's kind of a lengthy quote like the last one, but it's worth reading. He said, the first and most basic thing that we can do, talking about as disciples, is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part, and thus practicing the presence of God, is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Listen to this next line. I love this. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. In other words, listen to this, guys. This is beautiful. What Lawback and Willard are saying is that if you will keep at it, if you will reorient your life around goal number one of being with Jesus, that won't happen overnight. What will happen is you will come to a place where as you practice the presence of God, when you get that moment of silence, when you maybe first wake up in the morning or you get some breathing room, you'll be able to actually meditate on God and experience his presence without all of the distractions. And then if you will stay at it and keep practicing, you will get to a place where, think about this, even when you're changing diapers, even when you're at work or you're in line or you're in a meeting or wherever it may be, you can live, what these men are saying, with a constant awareness of God's presence in your life. And therefore, as a result, you will, in the words of Thomas Kelly, learn to live with an unhurried center of peace and power. Isn't that fantastic? What a goal to shoot for. And if you're here this morning and you're like, well, how in the world do I do that? I mean, where do I even start? I would say you start by first and foremost recognizing your union with Christ, um, which is just a theological kind of concept that means this, that when you give your life to Jesus, the Bible teaches over and over that when you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you immediately go into Christ and Christ comes into you. You're in Christ and he is in you. Think about that right now. That's a theological reality. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are in him right now and he is in you through his Holy Spirit. And listen, I know as I say that right now, like people, you're, you're looking at me like, I get that theologically in my head, but I think there are so few of us that feel it right here in our hearts. So few of us that experience intimacy with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And so it starts with just realizing what is true. You are in Christ. He is in you. And then secondly, I'd say if you want to experience what it's like to be with Jesus, you've got to slow down in an overly busy, distracted digital age that we live in, you have to carve out time for these time-tested practices that have been passed down to us throughout church history. Things like reading your Bible, praying, fasting, silence, and solitude. And here's the thing. As you practice what is known as these spiritual disciplines, you will increasingly open up your life more and more to the Spirit of Jesus. So the first goal is to be with Jesus. The second goal of a disciple out of that is to become like Jesus. Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says the following, the student, or the word that can be used there is disciple, 
is not above his teacher or rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will be like the rabbi. Put another way, what Jesus wants you to realize is that if you're going to be his disciple, your goal in life should not just be to be with him. Your goal should actually be to become like him. This is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. It is what we as your pastors refer to as spiritual formation. And what we mean by spiritual formation is just the process by which you are transformed more into the image of Jesus. And therefore, I would say more and more into the best version of yourself. And when I'm talking about the best version of yourself, what I mean is the version of yourself where eventually, guess what? It becomes easier for you to forgive than not forgive. Imagine that. I'm talking about the version of yourself where it becomes easier for you to pray and trust God rather than to freak out. Where it becomes easier for you to be content rather than discontent. It becomes easier to compliment and encourage and love and be present in the moment and listen rather than to not do those things. This is the kind of human being that Jesus Christ wants to form each of us into. But here's the thing, and please hear me today. You will not become that kind of person by accident. No matter who you are or where you come from, nobody in here will stumble into godliness. Like, none of us are just going to wake up one day when we're 47 years old and be like, oops, I'm suddenly living the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I don't even know how that happened. Like, now that I think about it, I haven't had a lustful thought in eight years. That's amazing. Like, like man, it's an election year, and I'm not even freaking out. Like, I'm not blasting anybody on social media. It's amazing. Like, I'm free from the love of things. I'm just so generous. How did that happen? Right? Like, though we wish that life worked this way, the truth is transformation doesn't work like this. Like, nobody will passively just become like Jesus, but rather the opposite is true. And the fact that because we live in a culture that is, is literally a current that is moving us in the opposite direction of Jesus, if we become passive in our spiritual formation, what will happen is we will not be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. We will actually be conformed more and more into the image of the world. And to help you kind of understand how this works, we have what we call the unintentional spiritual formation paradigm, which I know is a mouthful. And if you can come up with a better name for it, Feel free to give it to us. But what I want you to see in the unintentional spiritual formation paradigm is this. Everything you see on the screen are things that are forming you every second of every day, whether you realize it or not. And so first off, we are all formed by the stories we believe. In the words of the Hollywood screenwriter, Bobette Buster, we are all, you and me, are what he calls narrative creatures. What that means is you cannot not try to make sense of your life apart from stories. So, for example, if I walked on the stage late, it's like you guys are waiting for someone to come preach, and I walk on the stage, you cannot not in that moment make up a story about why I was late, whether you realize it or not. And what everyone is showing us now, from in the Bible to outside the Bible, scientists, right, psychologists, what they're saying is we're all shaped by the stories we believe. Stories we believe about our finances, our sexuality, our marriage, the afterlife, is there a God, is there not a God, right? The stories you believe shape you for better or for worse. Secondly, we're shaped by our habits, what, again, uh, has been proven through uh, works like The Power of Habit, which is a New York Times bestseller, every time you do something, every time you do something, it does something to you. You are, whether you realize it or not, a little bit more than the cumulative effect of your daily habits. They are forming you week by week, day by day, minute by minute. Third, you are also formed by your relationships. As my dad used to say, Son, you show me the people you're running with, and I'll show you either the man you are or the man you will become. Why would he say that? Because the people you run with influence you. 
They shape you. You tend to dress like them, act like them, vote like them, listen to the music, talk like them, right? They shape you. Um, fourth, we're shaped by our environment, right? If you grow up in Paragould, Arkansas, as opposed to Portland, Oregon, or Melbourne, Australia, or Chicago, Illinois, all of those environments are going to shape you in different ways. They just do. And now, because of the smartphone, we're not just in this environment in northeast Arkansas. We're also in whatever environment that we're in, right, that we're looking at across the world. And these things are shaping us. In light of that, I would just encourage you to ask yourself right now this question. What are the stories that I'm believing? Like, like, why are you doing the things that you're doing? Like, who told you that was a good way to live your life? What are the stories that I believe in? What are the, what are the habits that I'm living into? What are the relationships and environment like, that I find myself in? And what are these things doing to me? Ask yourself this question this week. When you log on to Netflix or Amazon Prime, ask yourself this question. What is this show doing to my heart? Because it's doing something. Like, what is this relationship turning me into? Because it's turning you into something. What is this budget or activity or class or video game or job or book? You fill in the blank. What is it forming me into? Is it forming me more into the image of Jesus or more into the image of someone or something else? Guys, what you have to realize is the reason we call this the unintentional spiritual formation paradigm is you don't even have to consider yourself to be a spiritual person. This isn't even a Christian idea. This is just a life idea. All you have to do is wake up tomorrow morning and all that stuff is going to form you. It is. I don't care how strong you think you are, cool you think you are, individualistic you think you are, unique you think you are. All of that stuff is going to form you. You don't have to take notes. You don't have to schedule it. If you will just wake up tomorrow morning with no intentionality, just go through life passively, you will be formed more and more into the image of what the world is telling you you need to become. And therefore, because that is true, if you want to become like Jesus, which means if you're here today and you want to become more and more the kind of person who experiences love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness, if you want to become more and more the kind of person who is marked by the power of God, then you have to counter everything you see here with what we see next in the next slide, which is what we call the intentional spiritual formation paradigm. And what you will see is at the top is, first off, if you want to become more like Jesus and therefore the best version of yourself, you have to counter the stories that you're believing that the world is feeding you with truth from God's word which means you need to memorize scripture. You need to keep showing up here like you're doing right now on Sunday mornings to hear teaching from God's word. Um, you need to attend workshops like we have throughout the year. You need to listen to those prophetic words that people speak into your life. I had a woman come up to me right before I preached a last, uh, last service. And was just like, Man, here's a word I believe that God's called me to give to you. And it's a word that I want to take in and put in my notes in my phone. I want to go back and recall that often. Through the music you listen to, you need to make sure that you're listening to music that, that tells you truths about who God is and what he's done for you and how that shapes who you really are and how you're to live your life. And as, listen, as you take on these mental maps of Jesus himself, it will allow you to show up in reality in healthy ways. So we need to first counter the stories we're believing from the world with the stories of truth from Scripture. Secondly, we need to counter our habits with practices. The reality is, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. So you need to look in the Scriptures, identify what are the practices and the life and teaching of Christ, and adopt those yourself. Third, you need to counter relationships with community. 
What I mean by that, the difference between relationships and community is relationships is like a high school cafeteria. And the fact that if you go to the high school cafeteria, you know that the cheerleaders sit with the cheerleaders and the jocks with the jocks and band with the band, right? Like you, you, you find the people that you have a mutual interest with and you just hang out with them. Community is different than that. Biblical community is not just like I'm hanging out with you because I like your shoes or, or I like your style or I like, you know, you have the same job. That biblical community is literally saying we're going to be a group of diverse cross-generational people who come together and our glue is not our interest, but is Jesus Christ. Like that's biblical community. And when you have that, what you have is not a group of perfect people, but a group of imperfect people who are standing in need of Jesus together on the same journey with you. And therefore, they can encourage you. They can love you. They can exhort you. They can rebuke you whenever necessary. Right? They can hold you accountable. All of that is necessary. You have to have it if you want to be conformed more into the image of Jesus. And finally, you see in that triangle, we want to counter the environment with the Holy Spirit, which doesn't mean that we like become monks who like just sit up in a tree in an isolated place and like eat jam waiting for like Christ to come back. But what that means is that we just become more and more aware of the presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit, no matter where we are. We're learning to live in two places at once, and we're letting his presence guide us. As that is happening, as you see at the bottom of the screen, uh, not overnight, not overnight, not overnight, but over time and through suffering, through the hard knocks of life, you can be conformed more into the image of Jesus. Now, for most of you in here, I'm guessing at least 75% of you, that is nothing new. How many of you have heard that before? Raise your hand. Okay? Probably at least 50% of you. The reason I bring that up again is, is, again, guys, please hear this. You have to be intentional about everything that I just shared if you want to be conformed more in the image of Jesus rather than deformed into the image of the world. You've got to be intentional. about. There is no other shortcut. I think about that story from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know I've shared this before, but right before World War II, the Nazi empire was at its height. The church of Germany was corrupt. And so Bonhoeffer chose 150 theology students. He took them out to a wilderness and kind of started this seminary where they could learn the way of Jesus. And his brother, who was not a Christian, as you could imagine, thought this was pretty ridiculous. And so he goes out to the wilderness and he was like, D, which I imagine he called him. Um, he was like, look, what you're doing is crazy. Like, you're a brilliant, brilliant student. Like, you were on the fast track to become one of the, the best and brightest, like, professors out there, an academic. And, like, what are you doing, man? Like, leave here, go back to the city, get back in school, find your girl, put a ring on it, get married, have some kids. Like, just be normal. And Dietrich heard him out, and eventually he put his brother in a rowboat. They go across a lake, they climb up a hill, and as the story goes, they get up on a hill, and Dietrich shows his brother a Nazi training cap for Hitler Youth. And they look at that, and then he looks back at his seminary. And what he says to his brother is, look, this over here has got to be stronger than that over there. What we're doing over here has got to be stronger than that over there. And as I thought about that, I thought about these spiritual formation paradigms that you see on the screen, guys. And look, what you see here, this intentional spiritual formation that we're talking about, what's happening here in our church has to be stronger than what's happening to you out in the world. Whether you believe it or not, please hear me today. This might be one of the most important things you need to, to, to stop and ponder. You are a disciple of someone or something. Do you realize that? Like even discipleship is not a Christian idea, as we said earlier. You are, every single one of you right now, you're being discipled by someone or something, which means you're letting someone or something transform you more and more into its image. 
To be human is to change. You cannot stay the same. Does that make sense? This is why in the words of C.S. Lewis, every person you meet is either becoming an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. It's why Dallas Willard says that we all will die, and when you die, your death will simply seal the trajectory that you have already been on. With that being said, again, the first goal of the disciples to be with Jesus. Out of that, the second goal is to become like Jesus, and therefore, I would say as a result, to fit, to become the kind of person who one day will fit right in into the kingdom of God. Third and finally, I will say this. Um, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you don't just reorient your life around being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus, but you actually need to seek to be the kind of person who does what Jesus did. And I would just add on to that, to you would do what Jesus did if Jesus was you. And here's the reason I would add that little tag on there. Um, how many of you in here remember the WWJD bracelets back in the late 90s? Okay. Um, for those of you that are like WWJD bracelets, uh, what are those like? Just be glad you kind of missed that, that, that culture. Um, and so how many of you still have a WWJD bracelet? There was like three or four that raised their hand in the first service. That's awesome. Fantastic. Is it the same one from the late 90s? Wow, that's great. And so it really is. Um, and so the WWJD bracelet, just to fill everybody in, basically is a pretty good concept. You put on this bracelet and then you walk around. And if you come to a place where it's like, what do I do? You look at your bracelet and you're like, no, more importantly, what would Jesus do? And then you're like, oh, I know what he would do. And you choose to do what Jesus would do rather than do like what you would do. And you make the right decision. Okay. So it was a really good question. I would just say it's not a great question. And here's why I'd say it's not a great question. Because imagine you're a stay-at-home mom. And you're asking the question, what would Jesus do when it comes to changing diapers and breastfeeding? <laughs> I would assume you're probably not going to find a lot on that in the Gospels, right? And so I'm not trying to be crass. I just want you to think about this. Um, most of us in here are not a single celibate rabbi from first century Palestine. And, and some of you may be, and if you are, I'm glad you're here, Okay. <laughs> But most of us are not. And therefore, rather than just asking the question, what would Jesus do? Because I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He wouldn't get married and he wouldn't have kids, right? He wouldn't go work your job, right? He wouldn't do any of that stuff. And so rather than asking the question, what would Jesus do? I would ask the question instead, what would Jesus do if he was me? In other words, what would Jesus do if he had my job? What would Jesus do if he was a medical professional or a factory worker or a stay-at-home mom? Right? What would Jesus do if... If he had my personality type, which God wired you with, what would Jesus do if he had my father wound? What would Jesus do if he had my family of origin? If he had my income level, what would Jesus do if he were me? Listen, for the purpose of living out his kingdom vision in Northeast Arkansas. To be a disciple is to try to answer all of those questions. It is to begin to see your life through the eyes of Jesus, to embody his vision for what human flourishing actually looks like, and then to live that out in your neighborhoods, in your places of work, when you eat, you study, you rest, and you play. This is what it means to be a disciple. And this is what we as pastors call practicing the way of Jesus. In light of last week's teaching... And a lot of our teaching on our vision last week, if you didn't go back, if you didn't listen to that, I encourage you to go back and hear it. But our vision as a church is we want to see God's kingdom come and his will being done in Northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. And we believe if we're going to see that dream become a reality, we have to become committed to what we see on the screen, to practicing the way of Jesus together 
in Northeast Arkansas. Now, next week, Adam's going to come up, and he's going to talk about because we're family. We don't just kind of practice the way of Jesus all on our own, but we do this together. And then um, in a couple weeks, my good friend Brad Watson from Los Angeles is going to fly in. Um, Brad is an author. He literally speaks all over the world about how to live as a missionary. And so he's going to come and talk about his missionaries, how we live that out right here in our context in Northeast Arkansas. But for now, and very quickly, I just want you to focus on that first line, that we are called to practicing the way of Jesus. And the first thing I want you to notice about the way of Jesus is, listen to me, it's just that. It's a way of life. Guys, please hear me. Despite what you have been told, a disciple is not simply someone who prays a prayer and asks Jesus into their heart, dies, and then goes to heaven. A disciple of Jesus is instead someone who says, I want to reorient all of my life around the way of Jesus. And according to Jesus, please hear me, guys, the way of Jesus is narrow. Jesus says, and I quote, broad is the path, which means many people will find it. Many religious people will find it. It'll be easy. It'll be comfortable to be popular. Broad is the path that will lead to destruction. And narrow is the path, Jesus said. Hard is the path. Difficult is the path. Unpopular is the path that I am on that leads to life. So Jesus, right, to practice the way of Jesus is just that as a way of life and it is a specific way of life. Secondly, what I want you to notice is that when it comes to practicing the way of Jesus, it takes practice. In Matthew five nineteen, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, um, here in about four or five weeks, we're going to start the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to go through it for the rest of the year, pretty much. It's a, just a collection of Jesus' greatest teachings on what life is like in the kingdom of God. And what we often miss is this. We miss how the sermon begins and ends. I think I can put this on the screen for you. Matthew five nineteen. Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But look at this. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins talking about the importance of practicing, and then he actually ends again talking about practicing. Listen to this. This is Matthew 7, verse 24. This is Jesus' outro to the kingdom or the Sermon on the Mount, and he says the following. Look at this on the screen. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, what's the word? Practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words, listen how sobering this is. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into, what's the word? Practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. This is a haunting way to end the sermon. Jesus literally preaches this sermon, and then he says, Hey, real fast, I just want you to know, if you do everything that I just told you to do, life will go really well for you. You'll flourish. Like, you'll finally experience the fulfillment and satisfaction you're longing for. But if what I'm hearing right now, you just kind of tuned it out, right? You kind of just fell asleep, you're like, eh, whatever, or like went in one ear and out the other. Like, storms are going to come and destroy you. So, God bless. Y'all have a great week, Right? That's literally like how he ends the sermon. It's pretty scary. It's pretty haunting. And the whole point Jesus is trying to make is just this. Life in the kingdom of God takes practice. It's why Dallas Willard, again, says the following, that to follow Jesus is not about trying really hard, but it is about training really hard. There's a big difference between the two. Um, my wife, as I shared with you all a few weeks ago, uh, back in August, decided she wanted to try to, to get healthy. 
And so she said that she wanted to start running. And in order to run, she knew that she needed to set a goal to be able to run a 5K. And so um, the first time that she went out to run, I said, how'd it go? And she was like, terrible. She's like, I ran literally a quarter mile and thought I was going to puke. And I was like, okay, well, keep up the good work, you know? And so like, she ran a quarter mile. And here's, the, here's what I love about my wife is in that moment, what she could have done had been like, I'm never going to be able to run a 5K. I'm just so out of shape. And just, but she didn't do that. Instead of saying, I can never run a 5K in that moment, she just said, you know what? It's not that I can't run a 5K. I just can't run a 5K yet. And so not through just trying really hard to run a 5K the next morning, but through training over time, she became the kind of person who, guess what? Ran a 5K. And as I think about that today, as I look out over some of you, you have honestly begun to believe the lie that you will never be able to be like Jesus. She'll never be able to be, uh, be able to love others well like Jesus does. Never be able to listen well, to be present. Never be able to shake that addiction. Never be able to be a person of peace. Not a person who, who truly and, and enjoys the presence of the Father. And the reality is, guys, it's not that you can't be that. It's just that maybe you can't be that yet. And, and not through trying harder, but through training harder, through what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Please hear me, guys. No matter who you are or where you come from, don't let anybody tell you any different. You really can. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the things we just talked about in the spiritual formation, you can grow and mature into the kind of person who is able to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do what Jesus did right here in Northeast Arkansas. With that being said, to end, I want to go back to our metaphor of Mount Everest. In a lot of our teaching today, um, I really want us to think about and be clear on what it means to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. And again, I know some of you in here, you have no desire to be a part of a church. And I'm, I'm really glad you're here. It took a lot of courage for you to walk into the room today to kind of, I don't know, maybe peek over the fence and see kind of what this is all about. And so again, even if you don't have a desire to be a member of a church, this is still important for you to hear what I'm about to say. So at least if you decide to rail against the church, like you know what we're actually about. Does that make sense? And you can have an educated argument. And so there are really four different types of churches that you can be a part of. Okay, four different types, as far as that I can tell. And uh, I'm going to use the Mount Everest metaphor in order to try to, to sum these four churches up. The first one is what I would say is a church that is a um, high invite, low cost kind of church. I see it on the screen there. And this is a church that is like watching a movie on Mount Everest at the IMAX theater. Okay, so think about it. You got your comfy chair, you got your popcorn. This is a pretty cool church, right? Uh, the next church is what I would call a low-invite, low-cost church. And this church is like Googling images of Mount Everest. And so, really, it doesn't cost you anything, but, man, it's kind of boring. It's like, you know, someone comes over, like, what did you do today? Like, man, I just looked at images of Mount Everest. Like, oh, like, way to go, you know? Like, you're, you're doing well. It's like, it's kind of a waste of time, but it doesn't cost you anything, so you just kind of mindlessly keep doing it. You don't even really know why you're doing what you're doing. You're just, just kind of there. The third type of church is what we would call a high-cost, low-invite type of church. And this is a church that is like uh, doing a thousand-page research paper on the geological matchings of Mount Everest. And honestly, this church just sucks. Um, and, I, and I mean that literally in the fact that it sucks the life out of you. Because this is a legalistic church. This is a church that really is about try harder to be better and do more. And what's your problem, right? And it's just like, just quapam, and it's like hitting you with the whip over and over again. You're just like, what are we even doing? You know, it's like it, this church, it sucks the life out of you, okay? There's a fourth option, and this is the church that I believe Jesus has called us to be. And this is what we call a high invite, high cost church. And this church is like climbing Mount Everest. It's like climbing Mount Everest. 
Again, in the words of Jesus in Mark 8, we read it earlier, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? They must die. You must deny yourself. As pastors of this church, we've said it before, we'll say it again. Listen, here's our commitment to you. We will never call you to more than what Jesus has called you to. But we also won't call you to less either. And so here's what that means. To be a part of this church means to be a part of a church where you're going to be invited over and over again to deny yourself. It's going to be a church where you're invited to lose your life and to know that when you do, if you will continue to follow Jesus, he will lead us into a life together that is bigger and better and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. I was listening to a podcast this past week with the adventure icon John Bede who conquered the summit of Everest. And it was so interesting. In his podcast, he said this. I never knew this before. When you're climbing Everest, eventually you will enter into an altitude where your body will literally enter into a stage of dying. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? Like literally your body will begin to die. And what he said in this podcast is everyone who's ever climbed Everest knows that's true. And so if you go to climb Everest, like you cannot get to the top without knowing that I'm going to have to go through a process of dying in order to get there. And as I thought about that this past week, I just thought, that's what Jesus is telling us. I mean, that's it right there in a nutshell. He's saying, I want you to experience the glory. I want you to experience the beauty. I want you to experience my majesty. I want you to experience life to the fullest. Some of you are bored out of your minds right now. Some of you are so discontent. Some of you are anxious. You are missing out. You you are longing for so much more. And Jesus says, I've got it. It's not found in your drugs. It's not found in your alcohol. It's not found in your career. It's not found in that cute girl. It's not found in that funny boy. It's not found in your school. It's not found in your athletics. It's found in me. And he says, if you will be willing to die to yourself, to lose your life, you will then find it. The truth is, guys, please hear me. Despite what maybe another pastor told you about just you can pray this prayer, live however you want, die and go to heaven. That's just not true. It will cost you to follow Jesus. But it will cost you a whole lot more to not follow Jesus. In the words of John Mark Homer, the Christian life is a thousand small deaths to self that will lead you to one massive life. And a lot of that today as we end, though I'm in front of a crowd, I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. Let me just ask you this. What is Jesus calling you to die to right now? What is he calling you to let go of? What is it that you're hanging on to, that you're clinging to, that he has said to to loosen the grip on? Is it your schedule? Is it your finances? Is it looking at pornography? Is it sleeping with your, your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is the fact that you're not being obedient and sharing the gospel with them? What is he calling you to surrender to him today? And just realize, guys, when you enter into that state, it will feel like death to give that up. It's going to feel like death. It won't feel good. It will feel literally like death. But by entering into that process of dying to self, you will experience life to the fullest. With that in mind today, I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to enter into a time of communion. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is a moment where I want us to really reflect on the teaching. Let's, let's take Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 
where he says, woe unto you who hears this and let it kind of go in one ear and out the other. So I want you to just process what this means today for you. And here's what I want to invite you to do. If you are here today and you are a disciple of Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, you're invited to these, these tables. We have two in the front, two in the back. We've got a gluten-free option for you in the back, my back left, your back right. And as you come forward and you partake of communion, here's what I want you to be reminded of. It doesn't matter where you are in this spiritual journey. Some of you may feel like, man, I'm almost to the top. Others may feel like, man, I'm basically drunk at base camp. Right? It don't matter where you are, Jesus will meet you there. And you know how I know that? Because of what we're about to do in partaking of communion. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, rather than sitting up on the mountain and said, do what you can do. Try harder, be better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know what he did? He descended down the mountain to the lowliest of lowest places. And he came and he died a death that we deserve to die for our sins. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can now have a relationship with him. And here's his promise to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It don't matter where you are. I'll meet you there and I will journey with you every step of the way. And if you'll trust me, I'll lead you safely home. That's his call. And each week we come and we partake of communion. We be reminded of that reality. We tear off a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ. We dip it in the juice, which represents the blood shed for us. And we put it in our mouths and we are reminded of that truth. If you're here today, though, listen, and you're not a disciple of Jesus, again, I'm so glad you're here. You're a disciple of someone or something. And here's just my, my invitation to you. It's an invitation from Jesus. How about rather than being a disciple of someone who has not been proven over the, 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 the test of time, become a disciple of Jesus today. Go ahead and count the cost. It'll cost you, but it'll cost you far more not to follow him. So today I'm going to encourage you, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you want to give your life to him, I'll be up here in the front. So will Adam. We would love to talk to you about next steps. I want to pray for us, and then uh, we'll partake, sing another song together, and be done.